0: Hi, you're listening to Elevate, the podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in.
1: Often, scaremongering comes from ill-informed parents. It's like blind leading the blind. The best thing you can do is learn more about it and make sure that you're talking from a point of as much knowledge as you can. You can't wrap your kid in bubble wrap because then they're fragile. And if they're fragile, they're probably more likely to, when they do break, go down something to numb the pain. We all know teenagers take risks. You're never going to stop them taking risks, but at least you can make them understand the risks that they take.
0: Welcome to the Elevate podcast, a series designed to explore teachings, ideas, and thoughts on empowering young girls while celebrating difference. I'm Ramita Anand, your host, teacher, and educational mentor, and I'll be chatting with insightful activists, thought leaders, creatives, and all-round brilliant champions for girls. Through these conversations and my work at Elevate RA Mentoring Services, I hope we can join forces to foster meaningful connections in order to alter the narrative around what being different, especially for young girls, signifies. Hi, and welcome back to another episode of the Elevate Podcast. Today, I'm delighted to be introducing you to my guest, Alex Stewart, a member of the self-esteem team who delivers mental health, drugs, and lifestyle workshops across the UK. He is a unique and remarkable individual on many levels. As well as running one-on-one sessions with hard to reach students, he is also a teacher and a parent. And he knows firsthand the challenges that young people face with identity, coping with new routines, and navigating our 24 seven world. A self-proclaimed high functioning addict Alex has penned both a drug and an addiction talk designed not to scare, but to educate through his personal journey, sharing his own experiences of the battle to overcome and manage his own addictions. All of the recovery tools apply to the infinite ways addiction can manifest, including gaming, exercise, social media, or football betting. He has plenty of tips and tricks on how to handle big emotions, how to dial down anxiety and manage change. Alex is the ultimate non-judgmental listener who gives advice in an effective, almost like an older sibling manner. Well, that could not be more welcomed to this podcast that looks at ways that we can empower our young folks to make the right choices, to be able to thrive and to live the best versions of themselves which we all know in teen years can be extremely tricky. And many of our listeners are parents and teachers of young tweens and teens. So I could not be more thrilled to be having Alex join us on the Elevate podcast to help us navigate all of this. So without any further ado, I welcome the lovely Alex Stewart to the podcast. Thank you for being here, Alex.
1: Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to get started.
0: Oh, fantastic. I've had the pleasure of meeting you on another occasion, and I know that this is a work that is very passionate to you. And before we delve into your work, I thought it would be really nice for us to hear some of your childhood memories and things that might define you as a youngster, and what you think, as a teenager, some of the words that might summarise your characteristics, your personality.
1: Uh, I don't know, naughty, rebel. And <laughs> um, I, was, I was brought up in North London uh sort of queens park um to quite a privileged uh background my parents are both working i mean i hate the class system but i guess upper middle class that sort of vibe and my dad was sort of big in the government who's in the department of education surprisingly and my mom owned a publishing company and so i was lucky to have a really stable childhood yeah i don't really know how else to say that you know i went to private i was privately privately educated at primary but yeah i i think the thing that defined me or the thing that i remember the most is i was just that naughty child and like ever from ever since i can remember i mean I, I i originally was at uh my first primary school only from year one to year three and all of my memories of that is breaking the rules If my, like I say, my talks, my primary school record was my criminal record, it would read like assault, vandalism, theft, you know, like I I sort of dipped my hand into everything. And I've reflected on that quite a lot. I guess it was the sort of rush of doing it, maybe. I always knew there was consequences that just never really seemed to bother me at the time of doing it. And I don't know if that was a lack of thought. I mean, I was only six. But, you know, like I was just, I just did what I wanted, basically. And that just sort of followed me through. I was lucky enough that I got into another an, another quite high-achieving private school. I went to University College School, UCS, in Hampstead. I got in there in seven plus. Um, I guess another sort of thing that I remember about my childhood is I was quite bored and, I guess, lonely. Not that I would have said that when I was a child, because, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't really have had a concept of that, really. But, I mean, like, being going to private schools like that I didn't actually have a basis of friends in my area, you know? And, and that's the sort of product of private school, isn't it? You're from all over the place. And so therefore there was a lot of time at home, a lot of time bored. I remember the few friends that I did have, and this is, you know, predate mobiles and that sort of thing. I remember being on the house phone, like relentlessly calling them, like just wait, even if I knew they were out, I'd call them like every 20 minutes just until they did come home. And they'd be like, do you want to do something? Sort of thing. As I grew older, these risks sort of got a bit bigger, right? And and like I first came into contact with drugs in year eight, and that was direct contact. Well, I was lucky enough not to grow up in the the sort of access to information era that kids are growing up now. I remember it really clearly. It was like I got in with a popular crowd, and that was because I went to an all-boys school, UCS it was all boys, and that was the first group of boys that sort of went to Hampstead High Street and met up with South Hampstead girls, and it was all like, ooh, exciting. And, you know, we used to just go and sit in Starbucks, and like drink frappuccinos and that sort of thing but like I really really clearly remember it because you know being the naughty kid that I always was I was also I was I, you know I considered myself pretty confident I would always do the things that people maybe would be scared to do I'd always felt I had chat but that first time that I went to the Starbucks and I met all these girls I, I froze, and I never really experienced that before and like and it sort of bugs me a little bit I was like why what why can I like not do all the stuff that I do there when I was suddenly faced with all this that group of girls I didn't know and like a bunch of my close mates were there like all of them but quite a few you know enough for me to feel comfortable and so that sort of led me thinking that I had to do something about it
0: for context for our, our international listeners some of them are not British year eight is age 12
1: uh yeah 12 to 13 it was definitely before my 13th birthday
0: this is really interesting so you've sort of delved into this world of wanting to do the next naughty thing I'm going to put the word naughty in quotes but just the idea that you wanted to rebel were you rebelling against anything in particular that you wanted to
1: no not really
0: and did you have siblings
1: yeah I've got an old sister I like to be fair I mean she was she was quite naughty as well she got caught smoking in primary school I think she took them from my. I've got, a, I've got a half sister as well. I'm pretty sure she took them from her.
0: So you were curious as well, clearly.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely.
0: And you also used the word confident. You said I had this confidence about myself, except when, except when you met the young girls in Starbucks. So, and by the way, newsflash: I'm, I've got a. 13 and a 16-year-old and all the same things are still happening in north london private really? <laughs> schools. <laughs> so uh, uh,
1: things don't they, change. They don't. this is this
0: is really ringing close to home for me because I live and work in the area that you are describing quite close to so it's it's really very telling that some of the some of the stories that you're relaying are still going to be extremely poignant and very relatable to the to the listeners of of this podcast so you say you've got this confidence but yet the girls come in and suddenly you felt like you had to take it one step further
1: well it wasn't even that it's like i I needed a buy-in so i'm not proud of this what i did was i stole some money from my mom and dad and when i went to starbucks next time i just bought everyone frappuccinos and it was like, "Oh, hi. Who's you? Who are you?" Um, and it started with that, and then I sort of started smoking a little bit. Um, and I'm, I'm not, I'm not entirely. I, I, yeah, I definitely did start smoking probably before I I got introduced to smoking weed.
0: And so, tell me how that led to where you are today in terms of you've sort of given us a groundwork of your personality, and I really respect that, and thank you so much for sharing it. But the actual passion to help young people today with. The awareness around drugs and alcohol stems from your own personal story. So I wondered if you could take us through the next part of that chapter and where the.
1: Well, well, just like, I mean, it was then that some boy came from a different school and he actually lived down the road from me. And he he was smoking weeds because his brother was and he's actually selling it. And like some of my friends had already met him and smoked one and were like, yeah, like it's fine. You know, and bear in mind, like the the drug education at that time was nothing. I hadn't had any. I know I was in year eight, but we'll get onto that later. I think it should start earlier. And and the only thing was just just say no. All that stupid rhetoric, which like as a person who didn't listen to people just telling me what to do anyway, why would I listen to that with this thing? And like drugs being the biggest taboo, it's sort of I was like, well, why not try it? And you trust your friends. And they were like, look, we tried it, and, and it was fine. And, you know, don't get me wrong, we, we, like, shared one between, like, eight of us. But it was fun. And, like, for parents to deny that drugs are fun is stupid. Because drugs are fun, and, teen likes, and teens and, and young people like fun things. It's quite obvious that when you try it and you first feel the high, and you and, you know, no drug has an instant low. Not a single one. I mean, even, like, I mean maybe heroin with withdrawal, but I mean, even then I'll probably, uh, you know, if I spoke to some heroin users that first time that they used and then didn't, I imagine there probably wasn't that much withdrawal and there wasn't that much of a low, or if it was in comparison to what they then went through, it was nothing. So it started there. I, I got caught. We all got caught in year eight. I got suspended uh, as did like all of us. God, there was quite a lot of resentment at that. We weren't doing it at school. Like why why was it their decision for what we do in our pastime? You know? And like and interestingly enough, we you know, all of us well not me, but a bunch of us had older siblings and they sort of echoed that. They were like, There was actually a couple of year six one students who stalled into their master's office was like, This is an outrage. I can't believe you're suspending kids for what they're doing at the weekend. Um and you know, private schools have that thing of like, you'll let of school all the time, rubbish. Um, but like, you know, there was like a big like God, like it felt really unfair. Um, I was labelled a ringleader, don't know if I was, but I was labeled one. And then and I was put on drug tests. And and that was a very brief hiatus after that, because there was a fear. Um and and like I didn't want to get caught, I didn't want to get in trouble. And they just said you what you're doing is wrong. Again, no education. Um, but then in year ten, they'd stopped drug testing me. So I was like, well, Why wouldn't I start that thing that I really enjoyed? Um, And I started it with so much more of a passion. I was much more streetwise. I got a dealer, I had all the friends and it just started becoming something that I did much more regularly.
0: And was it easy to get a dealer?
1: Yeah, of course it is. It was my friend's neighbor.
0: Wow. You mentioned the fact that you wanted to go and do things that make you feel good, which totally, I, I completely get that. And teenagers generally who don't have a fully formed, mature prefrontal cortex, which many of us know. So they often want to take risk. You found yourself in that risk-taking category even at year ten after t- the drug testing had stopped. Where were your parents on this in terms of consequences, fear of being in trouble?
1: I mean, I mean, they, that that's the whole reason I stopped in the first place, right? Because of school and them. Like, I mean, my dad was much more hardline. Um, he's a bit older. My mum was like tried to not be so hardline. But ultimately the big thing was punishment and grounding and, and what you're doing is wrong and brisk and all, all that sort of stuff. And like because it was framed in that way, I was just like, you don't understand, you're just punishing, you're just being typical of author- authoritarians without even really listening to my voice at all. So and like, you know, it worked in year eight. So by year ten, I was just like, I'll do what I want. Um and like and, and I did, and I started with a passion, I was doing it in school, and then I got caught again and I got expelled. You know, I was probably subconsciously making some very unhealthy connections with smoking weed and some of the feelings I was feeling with, like, losing my friends and being angry and being upset. Um, but, I, you know, you're not aware of your subconscious till it hits you in the face.
0: What point did you consider yourself an actual addict? Is that the right word to use?
1: um i I call it high functioning addicts, but i mean yeah yeah i mean like but basically put this way addiction just like a lot of things we're realizing is a spectrum you know like it's like there's no black and white like oh you're an addict or you're not it's like i don't think we can look at it like that that's mental like and and that's partly because of the sort of stereotype of what we were told addicts were which is you know the the person on the street or the person who's you know severing all relationships or committing crimes or all of that sort of stuff and it's like that's mental and like, not only can you be addicted to more the things that aren't drugs, it's a massive spectrum. There's probably loads of high functioning addicts, like that you know that are teaching in your school. Sorry to say, like I was one. You know, so anyway, let's skip forward a bit because, like, I then got into a tutorial college, like a pri- like a private school for we called it DLDs, Druggies, Losers, and Dropouts, because it was basically to be in that school, you were there for a reason. Like I got expelled twice. One of my friends like robbed someone. But that school had very little rules. Like it was like turn up, you know, typical normal school rules. But really, it was just turn up to your lessons, do your work, be polite, and respectful, and don't fight. But other than that, like they let's do what we want. Like we could go out. Like at you know at GCC, we could go out for lunch. If we didn't have a lesson, we didn't have to be in school. Like we were wearing on clothes. And that allowed me basically to smoke all the time. Um, and, and, and don't get me wrong, I got caught a few times in that school. Don't know my parents know about this, they will know. But I got caught a few times in that school and they never expelled me. Partly maybe because I was, I was one of the highest achieving students there. So they didn't want to because of stupidly tables tables, thanks to Tony Blair. But, um, but also, I guess because of the understanding of like, well, like, why would, why would we c- kill this boy's a potential of achieving stuff just because he's doing something like he's not it's not like I was rolling up in the lesson and blowing it in their face so it's like ultimately actually what you know other than to himself but you know what like expelling me probably would have been even worse
0: so the evidence gathering isn't really proving you or putting you in a place where you feel like right this is detrimental for me this is actually fine
1: well i mean yeah i mean i was a, I was a blasé teenager do you know what i mean like and i was i was ignoring quite a lot of things that were happening in in the back of my head or or not really aware of them but i mean it was it was towards the end of that year that i got introduced to hard drugs And, and, and 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 like i was very adamant i'd never do that i was like no just natural uh weed and maybe mushrooms blah 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 um but like all it took was one of my friends to just try it and be like you know what it's just exactly the same as when you start smoking weed and they said, Don't smoke weed. And like, you know, and I like, I hate the idea that weed is a gateway drug, like, you know, but it, it it's the way that it was it was sort of made you're made to think it's a gateway drug. Like you smoke weed and then you'll take crack sort of idea. It's like it's not that, it's just more the it's more the you're creating this idea in your subconscious that everything I was told isn't necessarily true because now I'm doing it and none of this stuff is happening. Um and so, therefore, it, it it does logically make sense that it's a bit of a gateway because you're like, oh, then why wouldn't it be the same for all these other drugs? So I started taking party drugs when I was, like, 17, said like maybe end of 16, 17, beginning of AS level. It started with, like, coke and pills. Uh, I, we, and, and mainly because I got into raving. Like I love drum and bass. Like I started loving that music. I started getting into clubs. friend of mine was making fake IDs. And it became this thing that and it was always – and don't get me wrong – like, my addiction has always sort of been recreational – to some degree from very, very later on. Um, but you know, so then we were doing that and I did that all the way through. And again, I was like, look, it's not affecting me ac- academically. By then I was quite paranoid, to be fair. Not like really bad, but there was definitely elements of paranoia entering into my life. Um but again I just sort of batted that away and felt like I could handle it and, and stuff like that, which was foolish because it, it just started to get really out of hand. Um I went to university and I had a brief hiatus mainly because and i'll talk about this in the talk, but you know my environment changed i was a drama student all those drama students i hadn't really connected with the ones that took drugs and not many of them did um and so like when i was at university i just didn't take it not because i mean if i had the opportunity i probably would have but i just didn't and i didn't think about it and so that's you know the idea of that sort of level of addict where i was like no i've got to find the drug takers in the university no i didn't like i just was happy doing drama and that sort of thing. When I came home, I still had my friends and back in that environment, I still did drugs. And uh, and ultimately, and, and what's interesting is like their, their drug taking, no blame here, but their drug taking sort of started accentuating. Like we used to just do it in the club and then go home or like maybe some of us would go home together but we'd never carry on taking them. But now they do this thing that we, we, we call an after jam where you, you go and if you have stuff left, you still take it and potentially you might even get a little bit more and you sort of extend the night till some point the next day um Anyway, it, during university though, was the rise of methadone. I don't know if you're aware of what that is. It was a legal high that you could buy over the counter. It's what um made the government do the 2016. I'm not going to remember the name of the law now. The 2016 not psychoactive law. Anyway, it was a law basically in the past that a- a- any any substance that is psychoactive that affects you is illegal if you're taking it for that reason. But before that, you could buy this methadone stuff over the counter. And so suddenly in my second year of university, all these people were like, I don't take drugs. I never take drugs. Oh, God, they're illegal. We're like, oh, what? You can buy this over a counter? Oh, yeah, I'll take that because that's safe. You know, and it's interesting the link to vaping there. But, you know, and they were like, and suddenly all these people were doing it. And I, honestly, I've never seen so more dangerous drug taking. Like, at least we knew what we were doing was illegal. And so there was a certain element of restraint and, like, just understanding. It's not like I'll go to a... a a club and pop 30 ecstasy pills you know what i mean but like honestly there were people and they were doing it just all night going and doing it at school going to work and like it that that was mental like when i was trying to show them like you're still doing a drug and like some of them just wouldn't have it then when i came back from university i wanted to be an actor it was also mid-recession and like i just went down this massive spiral my acting dream went down the drain mainly because like i wasn't prepared for the industry industry is really cruel um, I didn't have the chin for it, and I didn't have any industry training. A friend of mine did super well, and we had the same agent, and I just had no idea why Why wasn't I getting the same auditions he was. And it made me just really, really, had a really poor thing in mental health. And because all of my, most of my friends worked in the clubbing industry, that was the only work I could sort of get, if any work at all. So it's like, I started working in raves, so my drug use increased. And that was not like a, I want to do more drugs, I'm going to work in raves. It was just, it, that's just what happened. And also because my mental health was so bad, I was making all these bad connections with it was helping and not like a conscious one. Never get me wrong. I wasn't like, God, I've got to get a pill because I feel so sad. But it's just like my brain was going, it is making it a bit easier, though, isn't it? mate? And like and, and by that and now by now, this is when my paranoia and stuff was actually getting way out of control. Like sometimes at the end of nights, I was having paranoid delusions, thinking people were talking about me, thinking people were like making up languages. Because I got to, sometimes I got to a point where I couldn't talk because I, I was so mangled. And I felt everyone knew that. And then they were mocking me for it. And like, I, I, I spent probably, I, I don't know how long, but like say let's say a year just thinking this and never even be able to speak about it. Because like, not showing if it was true and weird. When I did finally speak to my mates about it, and they're like, God, oh, that is not happening. But so, you know, so that's what came in front when I was unemployed. But then when I was a teacher, like I had money. So if anything I could have done more but no so, you know I was more busy and and I and I like teaching and wasn't you know it wasn't just a job for me um and so there was times I had work and all this stuff so yeah my use decreased and also like I stopped going to raves and that sort of thing but what I found was that I just started doing it in other places I started doing in the park or I do it like mims and mates and a house or, like house parties and like to begin with those paranoid delusions sort of ebbed away a little bit cuz I wasn't just like with a bunch of randoms and that sort of thing and so I was like, "Oh, that that's fine. That I was right about all that stuff." And, but then it just happened with my really close mates, which was so hard to deal with. Thinking that people I know and trusted for so long—they were doing all this weird stuff to me—and and like I constantly have to tell them. And like you know, they have these weird nights, and we we call them wig outs. And you know, this happens to a bunch of my friends. We have these wig outs where we just we're certain this stuff is happening, and it's not. Or you get like an idea in your head, or you get you think someone's doing something, all that sort of stuff.
0: And when do you hit your do you want to call it rock bottom or when do you hit your lowest point when you realize you're in trouble?
1: Yeah, It's an interesting one but I, you know I don't know if I ever hit complete rock bottom like as rock bottom is phrased you know like because rock bottom is linked to like a, you know real serious addicts on very very harder drugs which again I don't really like that phrase but I'm just sort of matching the language that people understand and it's just like I don't necessarily think on the addiction spectrum maybe i hit rock bottom and it just it just got to a point where i realized i can't continue to do this mainly the birth of my first child when i found out i was a i found out we were having a baby that nine months of while she's pregnant was just a massive like why like i can't do i can't exist like this and be a dad you know and i quit my job i quit being a teacher because of that because i wanted to be more of a dad and i wanted to be a dad and like i can't How could I be a dad if my mental health is all over the place and I was paranoid and I was doing drugs all the time? Like, I couldn't. And like, don't get me wrong. It wasn't like, cool, I'm just going to stop. Of course not. It wasn't like I flicked off a switch. But like that was the start, I guess, of me wanting to change. So it wasn't that I hit rock bottom. I think it was more my priorities changed and my environment changed once again. So then, you know, I had my first child and it was rocky for a couple of years. Don't get me wrong. I mean, like, I think the party drugs were easier to stop. Definitely. Smoking weed was not as easy to stop. I mean, it had been a 20 year habit. Did you seek help? You know what? Not, not really. I mean, not, not like professional, right? Like obviously I've got a massive support network and I thank my heavens for it. I've got a very supportive wife, um, family, sister, you know i've never I've, and, and like it could be a deep ingrained thing from because i'm a product of that old mental health thing of like you know what we all thought therapy was which is so so wrong and, and it's not the advice i give funnily enough you know i'm like i'm like all for therapy and i encourage everyone to do it and being able to speak objectively to someone is great i i, I personally i just I guess i think uh, for me my whole support network i feel offers me that so i've never felt like i've had to go down that route yet and don't get me wrong i might and, 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 and I'm not closed off to it, but it's like, and and, and maybe if I'd done, it might've actually been easier, maybe, but like uh, uh, for some reason I didn't, you know, in hindsight, if I do, and when I do, I might realize God should have done that lo- way earlier. But I guess like, and I wasn't quite prepared to be as open about it as I am now. Also like at that time, having my tri- child was when I joined the self-esteem team. So I suddenly started understanding my mental health. Cause I know I spoke about how my mental health was really suffering. Then I had no idea what mental health was. I just dealt with my problems when I had problems, you know? And like, it's only all this, it's only now since I've been working with them and I'm looking back and I'm like, wow, my health is bad here and here and here and here. Like all that time, I just, I just powered through and barely reflected and barely like, do you know what I mean? Um, Because of my lack of understanding of it. So me understanding that, you know, coupled with my birth and my child, then made me, well, right, I'm I'm actually going to research more of the drugs that I took. Because like, really, I never really bothered to research it. I just wanted to learn about the stuff I wanted to learn about, which was like what they did to me and where I could get them and that sort of stuff. Like I didn't bother to look into just everything. And so I started doing that and I started delving into addiction into much more, much more um, depth. And I guess, you know, in some cases that was my therapy to some degree. You know, it wasn't professional but that's what I did. I, I, I learned and it was the knowledge that I gained from looking into that and delving into, you know, what alcoholics anonymous do and that sort of thing. It was all of that, that it's helped me on the journey to, and, you know, it's interesting. you put in the questions saved. I really, I, I completely counter that word saves the wrong word. Cause save implies you're over it. You know, you get saved from a dragon and you're not with the dragon anymore right it's like i don't i'll never be saved you know in for my level of addiction it will be something that will constantly prop up and i'll constantly be fighting to some degree it's just what enables me to win the battle and to keep winning it i guess and you know and, and i use battle loosely because as i said like you know if we talk about the spectrum maybe i'm somewhere in the middle closer to not heavy addict you know it's like i was a heavy recreational drug user or high-functioning addicts.
0: There's so much to unpack there, but first of all, let me caveat this by saying this is one person's story. Of course, every individual will have their own version of and terminologies and ideas of what hard, soft drugs are, or whatever that might be. So excuse us for generalizing a little bit. And obviously, I'm using Alex's story as a starting point for opening conversations that I think might be quite challenging for parents and teachers possibly as well. And I love the fact that you've brought up this idea that I use the word quote and what might have saved you. Again, I use save so carefully because I'm completely aware of the fact that sometimes when you're on this journey, you're never really fully, especially with mental fitness, as the word Simon Semenek uses for mental health, you don't know on the days that you might not be at your strongest. So you're not always home free, if that's the word to use. Of course not, because you
1: never know what's around the corner.
0: Another point that really struck me and I thought we should maybe reinforce and highlight is the idea that giving a child or a young adult like yourself an ultimatum or a threat or the consequence of you might not stay at the school aren't necessarily the right ways to motivate a young person. It's funny that you say it was an internal voice of the idea of becoming a father that really shook you in the sense that I just can't keep going anymore it doesn't work does it it doesn't it doesn't no, solve no, anything
1: it's, it's got everything's got to come from the person like you know I mean and, and don't get me wrong I get because that was also sort of interesting about working the high job that I did where I met you because like schools are in a tricky position because they would love to not have to do that but like drugs are illegal and they can't be seen to like to not have a policy on it. So it's like, and and like and, you know, it's interesting I did the teacher thing before I did the parent thing, you know, and a lot of them are do understand that, but ultimately their hands are bound. Like they have to have ultimatums. Parents don't. You don't. Like, and it's mental if you think you do. The idea
0: around scare tactics, what is your opinion on that?
1: Pointless. No, I mean I'm a product of scare tactics, didn't bother me in the slightest. Didn't even scare me, apart from like when I was getting apart from like when I was really young. But you know, by the time I hit 16, 17, can't scare me. You're joking. This is the whole point where I wrote the talks because scare scaremongering doesn't work, um, and so I wanted something an alternative to that. And I know I'm not the first, I'm not a pioneer in that. I get that. It's just I, you know, for our company we didn't have one, and I wanted to write one. It's also often scaremongering comes from ill informed parents. Sorry to say, it's like blind leading the blind if you're thinking about how you're going to talk to your kids and you're thinking it's scare, scared, scared, scared is going to work. No rubbish. The best thing you could do is learn more about it, be informed yourself and make sure that you're, you're talking from a point of as much knowledge as you can. And that might not be personal experience, of course, but like you, that doesn't mean you can't learn a hell of a lot about it. And it's like, if you are going to talk to them, talk openly, non-judgmentally, frankly, and, and biggest of all without fear of retribution, because all you're doing is all you're doing if you don't do those things is just encouraging them not to talk to you. And if they do talk to you, it's like I said to you in the thing. Say thanks. First thing, just say thank you. Thanks for sharing that with me, because I tell you, for that young person to do that is amazing. And and, you know, and, and that's what you want, really, isn't it? So if, if that's what you want, you've got to create an environment for them to do that. If you're not going to create the environment for them to do that, then I'm going to do it.
0: You say that these conversations are really important, and I 100% agree with you, which is one of the reasons I have this podcast, is to try and give parents a bouncing board from which to jump off of. The idea being that they've heard it somewhere, and they know it's possible, and it will make a difference to create that safe space. But is there an appropriate age or time that you think in a child's, a young person's development, that you should be bringing this topic up? Because some parents might think if it's not going on, it's too young. I had this conversation with a physician about puberty and periods with young girls and, you know, all of that, too. Like, is there an actual age which we sort of have with some idea around when kids hit puberty? So we think that giving them some information beforehand might be
1: useful. But with drugs, what do you think? There is no general rule, obviously, because it's like where they grew up, who they're connected with. Like, it, it, it will change for every single thing. Obviously, I'm not, like, I don't talk to my five-year-old about it. Like, I told my five-year-old I'm on a podcast, and then she was what about it, and I was like, uh. you know, I just said about my life story, and I said just about me, and I'm answering a question about myself. But it, it goes back to that point of, like, the access of information that kids have these days. Like, y- y- you don't want to run the risk of them finding out a load of stuff before you've even had a chance to chat to them about it. So it's like, and it's like, and it's again, it's like you know, this whole idea of talk to them about it. It's like there's so many different ways you can communicate and discover things and discuss things and, and watch something and 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 do it that way. And like, there's just a vast variety of ways that you can do it. It's not just like, right, let's sit down and talk about drugs, Billy. Like you know, like that's just so archaic. Um, and like, and like, yeah, you know, the fact that they have to have access to information, I do think that this these conversations are going to be happening earlier and earlier and earlier. Like personally, I I offer the drugs and the the drugs talk year seven and up. Um, I offer the addiction talk. I would offer the addiction talk to younger, but I probably would not really touch on drugs too much. You know, I talk about chemical and habitual addiction and how like we thought addiction was just putting something in your body that was addictive and that was it. And like that was clearly wrong. That was all based off some stupid experiment with a rat but like you know is there is that there, there's no golden rule there's no you know all all, all kids are different I, I can't say there is an appropriate age. I mean by year seven you should be having those conversations. yeah actually, yeah by year seven you should definitely or you should you, you shouldn't you shouldn't believe that they haven't come into contact with it some way somehow um because they will have in some degree
0: and year seven for any of my north american audience is age 11 just because i know how many people are listening to this from different countries so age 10 11 is year 7 and 11 12 13 is kind of high school here did your parents do that with you no
1: of course they didn't of course they didn't and you know you know what's a really interesting thing as well is like now, and, and, uh, you know, I'll I'll talk about, I'll talk about, uh, you know, I'll, I'll reference Bob from Dred UK here because he's the one who really opened my eyes to this. But, you know, ultimately, the best way to start talking to your kids about drugs is about the drugs you already give them. You already give them drugs. It's like, what is a drug? A drug is medicine. And like that, that thing really, like I was like, oh, that even blew my mind a bit. Somebody speaks about drugs and alcohol. I mean, I don't give my, I don't, you know, Calpol maybe, you know, my kid, my daughter isn't at the age of paracetamol yet. But, you know, it's like, are you giving your kids paracetamol? Are you going, like, God, I feel so stressed. I've got a headache. I'm so stressed. I'm going to take Or, like, I'm going to come home, like, God, I need that glass of wine. It's like you're already laying the thing of taking a drug. Yeah, it's legal. Still is one. And and the main thing you're doing there is you're escaping. And and it's like we all have a different way of escaping. And, and I'll talk about this a little bit more a little bit later. But, you know, it's it's just that sort of that disconnect of us versus them, adults versus, parents, uh, adults versus teenagers, when actually we all do the same thing. We all look to escape or relax or forget when we're stressed or we're, we're coping with something. And ultimately, there's just a root cause to it. And we need to address the root cause and don't demonize the whatever they are using to escape. Like try and encourage a different route of escape and understand that you do it too. And you know, that reading that 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 pamphlet that you get in a paracetamol thing is a great, I think, because it really get helps them un- to understand, like, right, this is a drug I'm taking. This is the things it's supposed to do, and these are the side, like, these are the potential side effects. And you know, and don't get me wrong, right? There there is there is quite a lot of psychological theory into, you know, like when you tell a bunch of people what side effects are, they then sort of take that on, right? But like, I don't think that there's enough there to stop us having the conversation, and and really, it's got to start there. And because then, when when you do start to have that conversation about illegal drugs, it's not just something like completely up. Like, We're now going to talk about drugs. It's like, oh well, actually, there are drugs that I've been taking legally, you know.
0: Yeah, I think you you put up a, almost a big barrier between you and your child if you sit them down and say, right just got to talk to you about drugs and the illegal uses of it and all of that. It it doesn't create an open, honest, safe place for children to feel that that's a place they want to keep coming back to. It's something that like you did, you heard it. And then in one ear, out the other is basically what kids will do. And I love the fact that you say when your child does come to you with anything to thank them for that. I love that empowerment and that vulnerability that you've expressed It's taken courage for that child to come up and and express something. And I love the fact that you are encouraging us to think about what it's like to have some empathy for that child and put ourselves in their shoes for a minute. This is a true fact. I've been out at dinner parties with parents of grown-up children who say quite openly, we've tried drugs, we do do drugs. And we know our kids are going to go out there and do it in the back of a park or parking lot or wherever they might be doing it why let them be unsafe in those places let them experiment with it where they're at home and i can oversee any kind of... so tell me tell me what I get would that you argument. say argument
1: i get that argument and like and don't get me wrong like you know it's not like you know with that argument it, it does give a it does give a sort of like well that sounds like the right thing to do i do sort of feel it there's just a slight encouragement there you know, if it's like, oh, I could do it at home, you know, I could, I could do it at home. And also like just a, a, a an understanding of the law. If you are like, because if you're encouraging, your, <laughs> not encouraging, but if you're saying, oh, you could do it in my house, you, you don't want them to do it on their own. Right. So they're going to be around your house with friends. If anything happens to one of their friends, that parent is liable Like they're liable uh, in the eyes of the law. You know, they're the responsible thing. They own the house. They allowed that person to take drugs. If something serious happens, like they will, they potentially could face criminal prosecution or, 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 or or, or something. And, you know, do you know what I mean? So it's like, there's that whole factor as well. Don't get me wrong. Like if you catch them doing at home, you know, it's again, it's not about chastising them. I don't think you can openly encourage it, but then, you know, it is, it's a hard line to tread, isn't it? So you don't want to encourage them to go off and do it in parks and, you know, where is their safe space? And that's a product of the illegal nature of drugs. It's a lose-lose, to be honest. say I'm not going, you know, if I find out my daughter's doing it, I'm not going to encourage her to do it in the house. I'll give my story and I'll be like, I'm not going to tell you what to do. I- I'm really I'm hoping that I can educate her enough that she respects what she is doing and respects the, and I like, it's a poison, right? It's just a poison where we enjoy the part of the side effects, you know, just like loads of other drugs.
0: So we don't want to chastise and we don't want to scare. We don't want to freak out. We want to create boundaries as well. I'm sort of taking our conversation into different areas of as a parent trying to understand where we communicate or how we communicate with our youngsters to be, I suppose, is to be smart about it, right?
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's it's, it's making sure they understand. Like, I think and that's the biggest thing, is, like, there was so much stuff when I was younger I didn't understand because I wasn't educated and because I wasn't having the right conversations. You know, do they get that how how dramatically much drugs have increased in strength? So the drugs that they are taking compared to the drugs that I took, compared to the drugs that a little bit older than me were telling me about, it's, like, it's, it's so much stronger and there's so much, you know, more being put in them um you know and it's like making sure they understand that making sure they understand where they they come from all the different variety of shows that talk about it and you know the interesting thing about shows is like i never think a show is just one thing you know like because 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 uh, i mean drama and tv and stuff it'd be really boring if it's just one note so they do always show a variety of it but it's and it's not just like watching the show and being like cool night it's like and then have a conversation about it and like sometimes it's those conversations that are the easiest because you can have an indirect conversation about a direct thing that may- maybe, you know, your son smoking weed, but he's just not telling you. Then watch a bunch of stuff and be like, oh, God, what did you think of Billy? And, and then and then he'll, he then he might come out with it or daughter, you know, then he might come out with, oh, well, like you know, what's, what's wrong with Billy? Like, you know, it's, it's legal where he is. He's like, oh, OK, so it's legal. You know, it's legal in some places to do lots of stuff. That doesn't mean that we we do it you know like just because some government have said it's right or wrong like ultimately that doesn't always mean that it's right and wrong and and, we, and that's a subjective thing that we've got to make sure we we decide ourselves and, and the best thing that, that that will enable us to make those good decisions is knowledge
0: knowledge yes education 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 it's true and as long as we know what's happening to that organ of ours that brain of ours and how it affects all the different areas of our brain when we do fill our body and and let those connections be made is so important. You mentioned media, you mentioned TV shows. I just thought we'd jump to this wonderful show that has become a real hit sensation, Euphoria. And I know it's not a show that maybe lots and lots of parents have watched. I think a lot of teenagers are watching it and it's definitely something I've been quite enthralled with just because it was quite confronting for me. It's brought drug use into the cultural spotlight But it also sparked a controversy over how much it portrays teen drug use. And I think it doesn't necessarily have to be euphoria in particular. I just wanted to talk about the general concept about whether or not we make it a problem for parents and kids when we glorify high school drug use and make it more common and widespread in today's world. And I wondered what your thoughts on that might be. And if you think, actually having these shows out there is a really good starting point, a springboard for us to then sit down with our kids and, and as I did, use it to actually share with our children some of the dangers that are being shown in the actual episodes. Yes,
1: I mean, definitely. I think glorify is just such a such a one-note view of that and that show in particular and all other shows. It's like, how can you say it's a glorified? Like, bad stuff happens to those characters. Not that I've seen it, but we, I've spoken about it in depth, you know. Like, it, like it, it can't be glorified if we're seeing a negative response. Like, it, that's, that's not true. Like, I think the interesting thing that I, I spoke about with Nadia, the, the, the person who heads up self theme team, is just how beautiful and how beautiful they all are, you know? And, and it's like, and it's like, so to some degree that sort of makes it look a little bit cool and aspirational, right? But then also on the flip side, like it's good to see these cool, beautiful people get messed up, get messed up and suffer by drugs. Because it again, it, it affirms that, that narrative of, it's not just your homeless person on the street. It's this can happen to, to like anyone. Another thing we were talking about is like, yeah, you know, they're liars, they're cheaters, they're promiscuous. It's like, how can it be glorified if they're all those things? You know and they're not glorifying those things and we know all of those things are bad so it's like i think the glorification thing you know and and also when we don't hear that we're not like oh that show glamorizes cheating that show glamorizes lying it's like well, oh but it does if if you're really gonna go down that route you're just focusing on the drugs And i know drugs is like a big part of the show but it's not the only part of the show it, you know if i'm honest like and, and with a lot of my friends People who've lied and cheated on them have probably damaged them way more than the drugs have, really. If I really think about it, you know, like sometimes some of the things my friends have been through, the root cause isn't the drugs. It's like someone, again, excuse me, fucking them up.
0: And for me in that show, what was really important to highlight to young people's parents and and anyone, any adult in their life, is that, and like you said, the using of substance is usually to numb a pain, or to soothe something—it's to fill a void of something, isn't it? On some level, you are trying to not face something that might be painful or hard. And hard feelings are difficult to talk about, or hard to admit.
1: But to some degree, those conversations should have happened years before, anyway. You know, like—I I mean, if you're not talking about with your kid about like how they cope with the the stress and the pains of life before they hit a teenager that's mental we we need to be talking about coping like how kids how are you what are you going to cope how are you going to cope with this and it and it starts with you know their little friendship my daughter has it all the time their little friendship rifts over like this kid doesn't like unicorns and stuff it's like well you teach them to manage that Don't just like, oh, it's only a unicorn or like, you know, it's like it all starts there. And it's like if they get to a point where they they don't know how to cope with the big, like the the stuff that's happening with them. Well, of course, they're going to look out and talk to people that aren't you and then potentially get these really super negative ones. Just to go a little bit back to the euphoria thing, it's like the focus on the drugs thing sort of makes it like blind to all of the other vital things that are affecting teens. And also it's a bit of a scapegoat. Do you know what I mean? It's like, oh, it's the drugs. It's not like, you know, it's a bit like, you know, Marilyn Manson was, you know, responsible for Columbine. Not like the widespread governmental failure closing down of youth clubs. Like, do you know what I mean? It's like, oh no, it's the drugs, guys. Like, God, if we illegal drugs and ban that, it'll all be great. It's like, no, it won't. It'll just be something else. It's like, why don't we address the, you know, the fact that they're bored, they have nothing to do, they have no places to go. And like, we're not necessarily educating them to deal with this mental world that we're living in. Like, I mean, to, like here and today. Just think about the last five years. It is just crazy. Kids are so aware of it. If I reflect back to when I was a kid, I didn't read the news. did not care about the news. I didn't care about anything like um, to do with that. I didn't know, you know, Tony Blair, and I couldn't give a damn about any of that. I can talk to a year nine year old, year nine student who knows about Boris Johnson and sleaze, and you know, it's like. It goes back to that access of information thing. I just think drugs are often, and don't get me wrong, you know, I'm not saying they're, they're great or anything like that, but it's just like, you know, they just become this thing of like, oh no, it, it's drugs. Ah. It's like, no, there's so, there are deeper, much deeper problems that we need to address and support. And if we did that, there are probably a, a bunch of, you know, not all, but a bunch of these kids wouldn't then go down the spiral that they go to, the, the ones that do. You know, the ones that do, or the you know, there just wouldn't be all of this, you know, epidemic of drug like you know, kids having drug problems and that sort of thing.
0: Yeah, and I think taking accountability and making sure we shine a light on those people that are responsible for helping young people create a world where there are stimulated, challenged motivated and doing things in, in the right way. But I think a part of this conversation, the thread of this, and again, there was another film, Beautiful Boy with Timothy Chalamet, that highlights the same thing. And I think one of the reasons I was so intrigued by your talk and wanting to bring you onto this podcast was this idea that you have to be of a certain ilk, or you have to come from a certain background, or you might have to have a genetic disposition of families with mental health issues that might lead you down the drug addiction path, and I'm really grateful for the fact that you're shining a, a nice bright light on the fact that this could happen to any parent's kid or any kid out there. And it isn't just about a certain type of child or of a certain socioeconomic background or a certain, you know, all of the times the things that I think are Biases, whether they're conscious or unconscious, but we seem to have them. And I know you put, you touched on it briefly when you talked about the picture of a, a drug addict being somebody who's homeless and maybe older and and not even in, in living in a nice middle-class home in queen's park like you did growing up and going to lovely private schools in north london which you know we all know isn't true but i think there are still people that think that and i wanted to see if you could give any advice on to parents or convince parents who think that this well my child would never get caught up in these situations how might you write just shake them a little bit and, and make them think that actually could happen to anyone
1: well like because like is your child living a is your child living a life like that's mad what are you protecting your child from everything bad in the world and if you are doing that then you're an idiot because the world is bad like it's like i mean there's a lot of good in the world but there's also a lot of bad it's like you can't you can't wrap your kid in bubble wrap because then then they they're fragile and if they're fragile, they're probably more likely to, when they, they do break, go down something to numb the pain. It's like, of course, like and don't get me wrong, like of course, these sort of stereotypes we we have, like it like are rooted in some element of truth. You know, obviously if you're in poverty or on the lower end of the economic scale, you're probably exposed to it a bit more. Maybe you have you, you can get in contact with it a bit more because sometimes it's used to elevate out of that poverty, blah, 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 blah. But like to say it's just them is just mental. Like, it, like it, of course it can affect anyone because ultimately it, it's about how someone is dealing with the world and the life that they're living. And if your child is in the world and your child is living a life, then potentially it could happen. And this isn't like, it's not like a scaremonger, like, so check your child is not an addict. Like, it's like, but it's just like for you to deny that, oh no, it never happened to Wendy, it's like that's mad. It's like you're you're living in denial. And also if you have that outlook, you you need to you need to go and look at drugs because you clearly you're clearly not offering the conversations and the education that your child is going to need.
0: Of course. And what would you say to your young students or people that come to work with you or use you as a mentor if they are find themselves in circles or in friendship groups where even if they know it's wrong and they don't want to use it, the idea around peer pressure or the idea of trying to fit in. Two things, right? Teens don't want to listen to parents. That's that's the last thing they want to do, which again, is a very normal part of development. So here we are, we've got these kids that are subject to what you say, the world is a mad place and it's easy accessible. It's out there everywhere. And the idea that we want our kids to understand you need to be educated on this stuff and you need to understand what it can do to your brain and what addiction means. What do you do if they are saying, well, it's not me, it's just my friends, just not my friends? What advice would you give those parents?
1: Ultimately, the thing that is going to enable peer pressure is them knowing. Having someone be like, you know, did your parents drink? That's a drug. And then being like, oh my God, i never even thought about it like that. Like all of these things are used to influence, right? And it's not like there's like some dark guy down an alley like doing all of it. It's just conversations that kids and everyone have and like because they have so many points of contact depending on what points of contact they have have already sowed the seeds of potential influence you know and and so it's like it's exposing to them and i get it. it's like, like it goes back to what i was saying before you can't sit down and tell them but you can you can show them all the different things you know you can show them and, t- and talk about it indirectly you can listen to different podcasts you can like and, and really with this this point of contact is really like media more media but also authority you know you can talk about different countries and how they deal with it you know there are some countries that have really strict punishments like someone's facing death penalty for potentially importing into some countries you know and some countries it's legal america had a war on drugs now they're legalizing and decriminalizing it because they've lost the war ultimately with the with the peer pressure thing a big thing i say to, to young people is you don't need toxic friendship groups like, at all. If you're there and you're feeling their pressure and you don't want to be there, just ditch those friends, like, it, I know it seems mental for me to say just lose your friends, but it's like, there's this thing, I, I mean, being in school is a weird, you know, it opens your mind in a lot of ways. Socially, it makes you very narrow-minded in some degree because it's like you just, that is your world. Your world is your school and the little... Your little world the outside with your family and yeah that could be quite broad you might travel and all this sort of thing but it's like you just don't make the same amount of connections as you do when you leave and you go off to your university or your job and that sort of thing and you just realize that wow and it's like you know you think about in circles of existence it's something i talk about in my talk and and and, and like i'd argue a, a, a kid's circles of insi- existence uh, there are not that many you know so if you're telling them get rid of one they're like what like how could i do that but it's like actually, it's like that. You know, that's one of the best things you could do. You know, and it's like, and like I, 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 like I think always have an escape plan is a really good piece of advice. Like, and 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 for parents, like these are the rules of an escape plan, right? you because and hopefully your your, your child will have do it with you but they can just do it with another trusted person an elder sibling or someone that they really really trust but the idea is is you have a code that can be a text message it could be an emoji it could be a, a number it could be a word when that word is texted the parent or safe person calls up makes an excuse gives them an excuse to give then that person can leave whatever situation they're not comfortable with And when they get in that car or however they're picked up or anything like that, they don't have to explain themselves. Very important. They don't have to explain themselves. There's no retribution. If they want to, they can, of course. And obviously, hopefully it's an environment where they can. But if not, it's just like, cool, I'm glad I could help you and save you from whatever it is that you feel you need saving from. Um, And that is a I think that's a really, really helpful tool. You know, peer pressure is a really hard thing. I can't take credit for that either. That That is that is actually from a woman who created a charity. She just got an MBE or knighthood maybe because her son died from taking MDMA. Um, and this is one of her pieces of advice. I mean, I'm sure it wasn't hers to begin with, but I just think it's a very, very, it's a really, really good thing to have because that that is what, that, I think that's the thing. You're there, you're there, you're being encouraged. You don't want to lose face and I get that. Um, you don't want to lose face, but you also don't really want to do it. And ultimately uh, enough time will pass and you just do do it. We all know teenagers take risks. It's just, and, and, and you're never going to stop that. Just try and inform them so much about the risk that they're taking so they can understand the risk. You know, you're never going to stop them taking risks, but at least you can make them understand the risk that they take. And so hopefully they make that, that better decision to not take the really risky risks, you, you know, more safer risks, you know? And, and, and if anything, and you can encourage that by taking them on risky activities. You know, fill that risk void by by facilitating some risks that they can take that are more managed.
0: Just wanted to end on a couple of personal questions about your own journey again, and tie the interview back up to if you could go back and do something differently in your teen years, would there be something specific you might point to?
1: I mean, no. I like, and and that's just because of that's just because of that is just such a negative pattern of thought. Like I hate, like, I hate it. And I did, I used to do it quite a lot and I've just trained myself out of it. What's the point? I can't change the past. Like, and I know it's about giving advice and that, but it's like, ultimately I don't want to, I don't want to perpetuate that sort of thought, like level of thinking. Like what could have I done different? What could have my parents have done? Nothing because we're not there and we're here. Right? Like, yeah, there were some decisions that if I made them differently, my life would have gone different. And like, yeah, you know, maybe if I didn't take drugs, I like, I wouldn't have the problems I have. doesn't mean I wouldn't have any problems like i'll just have a whole different set of problems it's all relative to your situation anyway um, and like and you know like yes and no don't get me wrong like obviously there are regrets there everyone has regrets but like also like i wouldn't be where i was today without my journey i wouldn't know the people that i know and it's hard so when i talk about drugs and addiction talk i have to focus on quite a lot of the negatives there's a wealth of positive positivity in my life that have also been sort of connected to i've been connected to drugs or like I have met them through drugs, or it has led to something. And I would encourage anyone to try not to have that sort of mentality, because you can't anyway, unless you invent time travel. And if you do, let me know.
0: (laughs) And I love the fact that you said you've done quite a lot of reflection and you think back to those days. And in hindsight, you can see certain patterns and you can see certain things that may have led from one thing to the next. But if you go back, use that time travel thing but if you could just go and whisper something not change anything but if you could whisper something to yourself as a teenager what might that be
1: maybe don't lie as much
0: and is that lying to yourself or lying to others both
1: Both. yeah both i was i wasn't the nicest the teenagers necessarily yeah i, I guess it, it, it would be that just be a bit nicer to yourself and other people and you know don't get me wrong I wasn't like a, a horrible person I don't want to paint that narrative but it's just like yeah I, I could have been more supportive less judgmental in a bunch of situations
0: and what gives you hope for the future
1: oh uh, yeah that's an interesting one uh I don't know like my kids my my family I've got lots of projects on I mean future's bright future's dark like I try not to think too much about uh, you know big thing is just be in the moment focus on what you've got now like you know, don't try not to look forward too much. I mean, you have to look forward a bit, right? And and plan ahead and that sort of thing. But you know, I guess, I guess just keeping myself busy, working on things that I really enjoy. I'm very privileged that I have managed to create a, a sort of working world where I enjoy everything, you know, and whether that's working with vulnerable kids or whether that's doing my talks or DJing or like I like games and stuff that I do. Like, and and so all of that gives me hope.
0: Well, what gives me hope for the future is having people like you working with young people and offering us those tools, that educational piece, the honesty piece of being real with our children, being honest and open about the risks that they face, but also acknowledging what they're going through. And I think these are so helpful and they're such important messages to give to our audience, to our young people, to anyone listening to this. And if you could share the episode on and maybe get Alex and his team to come in and do a talk with your children's schools, if they'd be interested in that, Alex, would you?
1: Oh, honestly, of course. Yeah, yeah. And even to your your listeners in another country, happy to travel as far around the world. Don't, Don't worry about that. (laughs)
0: Oh, really grateful, Alex. Thank you for your time. And I will link your website and your contact details in the show notes for anyone who's listening to this and would love to get in contact with you. Thank you again.
1: Amazing. Pleasure. Thank you.
0: And that's everything from us today. Thank you to all of you for joining in and being part of these very important conversations. I hope you will continue to support our cause by sharing the podcast to raise awareness with others. If you get a moment and could rate and review the podcast, I would also be hugely grateful. I'd like to extend a very big thank you to Ryan Prestipino from the Pine Studios for all the hard work that he does to help me bring this podcast to all of you. Until next time, stay well and speak soon. Bye for now.